You guys can have a seat. Rick is uh, preaching from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 this morning. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Good morning, everyone. Um, So there is a book... um, called Christ-Centered Preaching, and it is the, the book that um, seminaries teach and use, for the most part, to, to teach people how to preach. Um, and it's written by a guy named Brian Chappell, who I've quoted before, a uh, great guy. Um, and in this book, the, at the start of, of what he teaches about trying to preach is this idea called um, every passage has an FCF, a fallen condition focus, all right? And um, what a fallen condition focus is, is that it's our, the reason that this passage exists is because we are fallen people, and what part of our fallen nature is this passage addressing? And so there is, every passage in scripture, if you look at it, has some sort of fallen condition focus. Like what part of our fallen nature is this passage kind of attacking? And I think um, as I've studied this week and um, thought about the rest of the book of Ephesians and the stuff that we've talked about in the book of Ephesians, that there's one similar fallen condition focus that, that shows up consistently in the book of Ephesians. And it's that there is a, uh, a religious superiority that we all are, we all tend to hold. And um, a sort of, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm getting this right, you're getting this wrong, you should listen to me, you should pay attention to me. There is an arrogance that, um, that is true about us. And I think that's true, just generally speaking, of, of any argument that we make. Um, I'm right and you're wrong. Um, today, the sermon requires a little bit of background. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit, um, but not, not in a while. Um, remember that this is what we, what we know as the book of Ephesians is a letter that was written by Paul to a church in a city called Ephesus. Um, and there are two people that generally make up 
this group of this church in Ephesus. One is a group of people that were Jews by birth, and they were their religion was Judaism, but they had believed that Jesus was the Son of God, and He died on the cross and rose again for their sins. Um, and then the second group is a group of Gentiles. These are people that were outside of the Jewish faith, and they had also trusted in Christ as their Savior. And so this church is made up of people that are Jews and Gentiles, and um, the Jews thought that they were really special people that were loved by God in such a, such a way that if you weren't Jewish, you were less than, or God didn't really love you like he loved the Jews. Um, and they were the privileged class of people. And I think that one of the things that, that drives us crazy in this age, in this culture, in this season, is that um, this idea of, of privilege, and, and not just, we've, we've heard the phrase white privilege, um, but there's, I think, a little bit more than that here that's going on. Uh, there's a religious privilege that's true about these people, and I think there's also a religious privilege that's true about us, and I believe that the entirety of the book of Ephesians is tearing at that sort of racial and religious privilege, and in specific here, this passage is talking about it. So let's dig into the stuff that Kelly just read, starting in verse 11. Therefore, and he's just laid out the gospel, and that we're all completely dependent upon Christ and who he is, and there's nothing in us that is of any value to God or, or cause God to want to be drawn to us. Um, that's what the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 have been about and what the therefore is about. Therefore, because of all that, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Um, in this culture, for a Jewish person to say you are the uncircumcision is a, um, is a derogatory term. They, it would have been uh, a, a racial... In our culture, if, if, if we would bring that notion of what is intended by calling someone the uncircumcision, if we brought it to this culture, it would be something where you would need to resign from your position of authority if you were to say to someone, you are the uncircumcision. It is a derogatory term that is meant to make you less than who you are. It's very privileged. It's very, I'm above you. Paul says that everyone is the uncircumcision. This is a predisposition, a, a taught, a learned idea that we are better than people around us. It's a learned, familial predisposition to discriminate on a racial and religious basis. In other words, if you aren't the circumcision, you're not welcome here. If you aren't the circumcision, you are not loved here. God loves us, but he doesn't love you. God provides for us, but he doesn't provide for you. This is what is communicated here by the Jews. And Paul is built, trying to build a church here with people that are the circumcision and are not the circumcision. But Jesus has torn all of that down. Verse 12. Remember that you 
at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers and, and, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Um, we share one thing in common with every human being that's ever drawn a breath. The people that make you the most frustrated in the world, we share something in common with them. We were at one time separated from Christ. We have no hope without God. I've just, like this is a longer passage, and because it's a longer passage, I'm compelled by like who I am to like, let's go fast, let's go get through this so we can get through the whole thing. But I, I think it's essential for us to draw in that one little phrase that having no hope and without God. Without God, we have no hope. Um, and if, if, we, if we really honestly own that, how could we have any sort of privilege or, or, or bias or, or discriminate for any religious or, or racial reasons? We've all, we're all separated from, from Christ without, we're all separate from God without Christ. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near to God, not by anything that you have or have done or anything that's true about you. There's nothing that's true about you that has brought you towards God. Instead, it's Christ alone. Remember that Paul is writing this message to a church that is has a tendency, their fallen condition focus, they have a tendency to think we're better than somebody else, and he's speaking to an individual and a collective. And the, the, the heart of it, the point of it, is to, to center us around grace. The only thing that we have to offer anyone is grace. Um, these are... So, I, I want to I pause for a second, because the... There, there's two things that are in play here. One is the, the continual argument that he's making throughout the book of Ephesians, meaning we're trying to draw people together and teach them how to be a church. And that's the big overriding theme. So the reason that he's saying that you have nothing to offer God is so that he can draw people together in their dependence upon God. So that's the, the overarching theme that he's saying throughout the book. But there's also a simple and wonderful truth for the individual that, that, would, that would make our hearts sing. Um, I want to show you a, a clip from a movie that's, I don't know, several years old. Uh, it's it's a, a biopic of Martin Luther's life, and it's very, very uh, true um, in that they, they get a lot of stuff right here in, in this movie. And this is a direct quote. That, the clip that you're going to see is a direct quote, but I want to center our hearts and our minds and our ideas around this concept that that uh that everything that we need to have to be in the presence of god has been given to us by jesus abram hit that uh hit that clip so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell tell him this i admit that i deserve death and hell what of it for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also.
I want you to, uh, I think it's really important for us to zero in on this idea that as God builds and creates this church, um, and, and I mean specifically North Church, as God is continuing to build and create this church, it's centered around a group of people that are enthralled with this simple idea because we have an accuser who, who is Satan and he has only one weapon against us to get us to believe something that's not true. And the truth is, when the devil throws our sins in our face, say, yes, I agree with you. But the truth is, and this is, this is a quote that, that Luther has written several times and appeared in several sermons, that he says this, For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there shall I be also. When you believe lies or when people tell lies about you, understand the truth of this. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what Ephesians is getting at. And then more than that, more than that, in in application of, of this premise where Paul is teaching a church how to be a church. It's not just for the individual, it's for the collective. When Jesus Christ, when when Satan throws your sins at you. I have a responsibility to you as a part of this church to say, no, it's a lie. So as we gather together here, it's not just about self, it's about one another, that God has brought this to us. Do you see like how that, how that changes? That this is so many times, and that's again our fallen condition focus. We make everything about, that everything that, that we know about God that scripture illuminates, we make that about us. You make it about you, but it's about the collective. And if we are teaching ourselves to find the lie in how our sins are held, not held against us, you follow that? I think I just kind of butchered that a little bit. When we... We apply this to ourselves. We understand when Satan lies to us and says, I'm holding your sins against you. God is holding your sins against you. We're taught to to disavow that. But I think our fallen condition wants us to, to not apply that truth to the people around us. Do you sense that to be true? Like... The people that make you angry, that want, that grit your teeth. This is true of them. Verse fourteen. It, this is this is really good. It's something I found this week. Verse fourteen. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you know that in this day, at the temple, there was something literally called the dividing wall. On this dividing wall, there was one entrance. So, this, it, so the temple was a, was a court, a big court where everyone kind of gathered in the outer court. And then there was a wall called the dividing wall with one doorway in it. And on that doorway hung this sign written in Hebrew. No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. And whoever is caught 
will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. So when Paul writes this word, this sentence, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Like in the temple, in the church, is a wall that's designed for the privileged people you can go past here, the not privileged people you can't go past this, this wall. And if you do, you're going to die. And there's a sign that says that. And so as the privileged people would walk past it, they would think to themselves, man, I'm really glad that I'm better than that person. Think about, there's a physical wall in the church. And I, I think about this idea. There's a, if there's a physical wall in that church, are there not so physical walls, but walls nonetheless here? The answer is probably yes. And then there's probably walls for you. So I want to ask you two diagnostic questions. One, where are you tearing down dividing walls? Where, where are you actively tearing down dividing walls? And then secondly, where are you actively building dividing walls? This week I was at, um, not this week, last week, I was at an event. Um, a bunch of pastors in the St. Louis area gathered together on a night to um, celebrate and just kind of hear what's going on in a bunch of different places. And I was there with, uh, with Bird, Mike Bird. Um, and the worship that was being led here was, um, was very... Like um, I don't know, the, the the style of music was very much um, folky and um, very white. And Mike leaned over at me and said, "Look around you and see who's controlling the narrative." And I'm like engaged, like this is great. It's like acoustic guitar folk like this is I'm in worship it was incredible Mike leaned over and said that to me and my heart was like whoa and then I looked around the room and there was maybe 40% African American in the room and 60% white in the room and they were all people were gathered around tables and it was these were the white tables and these were the black tables um and there was one table that had a mixture of, of both. Um, and it happened to be the people that were, at, that were from Mike's church that were there that um, were at that table. Um, and I, th- I, I say that in light of these two diagnostic questions for you. These are questions for you to ponder, to journal, to consider, to pray. Where are you tearing down dividing walls and where are you building dividing walls? And probably the building of the dividing walls that you are participating in um, is not something you intend to do, but it's reality. 
Um, so, the, the danger here in this context is to get you focused on yourself. Those questions are, are diagnostic questions for you to focus on yourself. It's good for you to consider how this impacts you, how you're building dividing walls and how you're tearing down dividing walls. Um, but Jesus, go back to this, the top of this verse, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down the dividing wall of hostility. We get lost in, our, in trying to apply this idea to ourselves that we miss the fact that Jesus is the peace. Jesus himself is the peace. John Gill, a commentator about this verse, says, Christ has made peace between them by sending the gospel of peace to them all, both by converting some of each and by granting like privileges to them all. So I say, I, I spent some time telling that story and thinking about this idea of, of you, where you're building, where you're tearing down dividing walls. And so we begin to, to go inward with this idea. And when we go inward with this idea, I think a danger is that we can only go inward with the idea and think about how we can operate in our strength in tearing down dividing walls. But it's not... Mike Bird became an incredible voice to me to, to understand and see where I'm building dividing walls or where I'm participating in the building of dividing walls. But ultimately, it's not Mike Bird that can do anything about those dividing walls. It's Jesus. He is the peace. And we all, what we all share in common is that we're all broken and we're all desperately and deeply in need of Jesus. Every one of us. The peace that can come in your heart comes from Jesus and his grace and not anything in you. The peace in our church will come from Jesus and his grace and not some ability that we have, that you have. The peace in our world, the peace in our culture will only come from Jesus and his grace and not some ability that we have to exegete our culture and tear down dividing walls. Jesus is the dividing wall terror. And that's the, that's the point of what Paul is making here. We have nothing to offer God but to lay down our lives in front of him. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. There were two people that were divided and God has brought them together. So making peace. Peace means the tranquil state of soul, assured of its position and place. What if we walked around this planet, this culture, this community, this community? What if we walked around here with this knowledge that we all contain peace that was given to us by God, not of our own works, but because of what he's done, that was a tranquil state of soul, assured of its position? What if every person that ever walked in these doors called North Church walked in and sensed the peace that was assured of its position, that you're welcome here? 
verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Reconcile here means to be, to make right again. Jesus has accomplished it. Hear me, Jesus has accomplished your reconciliation. He has made the peace. Any brokenness of relationship that you sense or anyone senses is because we don't fully understand that Jesus has restored, reconciled that relationship. Um, If you feel something, a distance between you and God, God has reconciled it. It's a lie. Let it go. If you hold something between you and someone else, God has given you the opportunity to reconcile that. Let it go. Um, one of my favorite movies is a movie called Manchester by the Sea. Anybody seen Manchester by the Sea? It's great. You should check it out. It's on Amazon. It's incredible. A um, little bit of language, but it's, it's valuable language. Um, but it's an incredible movie. In the movie, there's a guy named Lee who is... Um, uh, at the beginning, and there's flashbacks in the movie, um, there is, uh, it's interesting. Didn't plan on saying this, but in the midst of talking about this. So Casey Affleck is the star of the movie. And there's probably people in here who have decided they're never going to watch a Casey Affleck movie because of something he did. Um... Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility, reconciling us both to God, and there's nothing in us that's of any value that would cause God to draw us to him. We are all in need of the grace of God. Um, So, Casey Affleck's character, a guy named Lee, Lee Chandler, is happily married with two little girls, and one night he makes a terrible, awful mistake by not putting uh, a, a cover on the fireplace, and a log rolls out and burns the house down. His wife um, escapes. She's sleeping downstairs, and his daughters are upstairs, and they are lost. They die. And um, the rest of the movie is dealing with Casey Affleck his character broken over what he's done. And um, instantly he builds walls and uh, leaves the city that he uh, had grown up in, where his wife and daughters grew up in, where his brother and his family live. He, le- he leaves and goes to a neighboring community where he lives a life in complete seclusion for the rest of his life until uh, Lee's brother passes away and it leaves a teenage son, and so Lee has to go back to the town. The town is called Manchester by the Sea. He has to go back to the town and um, deal with the, the burial of his brother and make arrangements for the last, the kid, it's like 16 or 17 years old, make arrangements for the teenager to who he's going to live with after his dad is, is gone. Um, Throughout the movie, you watch Casey Affleck push people away because he has this this deep discouragement for who he is. Um, And there's no resolution that's inside of 
of this guy. And the entire movie, people are, are engaging with him, attempting to offer him forgiveness and attempting to f- ask him to forgive them, but he never does. And there's, the, the movie never gives resolution. And so at the end of the movie, they've, uh, Casey Affleck and his nephew, whose father's just passed away, are walking up a hill and they're bouncing a ball back and forth to each other and not really talking but saying a few words, not of much significance. And the nephew bounces the ball playfully at his uncle and it bounces off his leg and starts to roll down the hill. And the last words that are spoken in the movie for this guy that you've been begging about this whole time, just let somebody offer you forgiveness. Just let someone offer you forgiveness. Let someone break free the walls of hostility that you've built. And throughout the movie, he says, I can't, I won't. There's nothing there. I can't, I can't, I can't. Um, So the nephew bounces the ball to him and it bounces off his leg and starts to roll down the hill. And the last words in the movie are, just let it go. And it's, um, I think it's poetic. But I think that's where, what this is telling us any strife or enmity that you feel between you and God or between you and someone else, you have created. Anything that you, have, you think is placed between you and God, you have created that. Because everything that is actually there has been destroyed by Jesus. And this notion of the grace that covers all of your failure, Paul is compelling us, propelling us, teaching us to believe this and act this same way towards the people that are in our world and in our lives. I want to speed through the rest of of the passage and end at 22. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. Wherever you find yourself on this spectrum, far off from God or near to God, how God views you is peaceful. He has reconciled you. Verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Whoever you think you're separate from, they have peace and access to God the same way that you do. There's No way that you can hold any sort of superiority towards anyone if you understand the gospel. But we need to continually preach this to ourselves because our fallen condition tells us that we are better than someone else. Do you believe that? Do you you honestly believe, I think you do, I think I do, that there is something about me that makes me superior to to you, that makes me superior than them? There's something about me that believes that. There's something about you that believes that. If it weren't true, Paul wouldn't have spent an entire book of Ephesians writing about it, tearing at it. And the heart that he is repetitively and redundantly preaching here is that we've got to fight at at allowing Jesus to tear down the walls of hostility that we build. Through him you have access in one spirit to the Father. It's not through your right beliefs or your right actions that you have access to God. It's through Christ alone. 
Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place by for God by the Spirit. In Him you are being built. You are being built. You aren't built. You won't, you won't be built some other day. You currently are being built. God is building a, His church here together. God is building His church. And so, I hope that I have, as God has done to me this week, I hope that I have to you today gotten in your face a little bit and shown you some some sin in your life. But God is is building that. Do Do you see what God is building? All of the frustration that our culture brings to us It's working together for the good of those who love him. Like we can connect with with racial privilege, with religious privilege. We can connect with that in a real way because of the world where we live. It shines a light on the truth of who we are. It shines a light on the truth of who you are. And so what is evil and dark and, and makes and brings misery in this world, God can turn it around and reconcile it to get our eyes off of our stupid selves and onto him. God is using evil to bring our attention to him and his church, bringing people together where he has created out of two, he's created one. Bringing peace. Look, look at the like. Look at the activeness of God in this passage. He has made two to become one. He has brought peace. He has brought reconciliation. All the stuff that that are the the depth of our hearts long for, God has done. And the heart of it, the point of it, is so that He could build this church. And look at us. We we don't have hardly any people here today. But it's, it's, it's beautiful nonetheless. He doesn't, he doesn't need what, what I think that he's after in us. The individual and the collective, when I say us, what I think he's after in us is an acknowledgement of who we are, sinful people deeply in need of him. And then bringing us together with all of our brokenness, To show that he's got a plan for it. Guys, Jesus is building his church here in this place. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to do with us. Let's go on mission together. A few people gathered together around these principles. Let's pray. God, would you take this disjointed and terribly crafted 
message that I've vomited here today and do something with it. God, would you allow us to introspectively look into our own spirits and our own souls, God, and see where you've done reconciliation work in our own hearts. And God, would you tear away at our arrogance And God, would you reconcile us to you and would you make us agents of reconciliation in your world, Father? In every relationship, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our parenting, in our our being children, in all of these relationships, Father, would you give us humility and kindness Would you build for yourselves one, for yourself one out of two, God? Tear at our arrogance, tear at our pride, replace it with your humility, replace it with our dependence upon you, Father. Tear at our misconceived idea of independence, Father. Show us how we're dependent upon you, God. God, thank you for your grace. That covers all of our sin. That covers even the sin that we repent of today, that we'll be back here in a year repenting of again. God, soften us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray.